1: Hi, I'm Eliana Johnson without Chris Steierwald this week. Welcome to Inkstained Wretches, where we break down what is going wrong and what is going right with the American news media. And in Chris's place this week, we have New York Post columnist Carol Markowitz, who is also the author of Stolen Youth: How Radicals Are Erasing Innocence and Indoctrinating a Generation. Carol, thank you so much for stepping into Chris's shoes. Hi, Ileana. Thank you so much for having me. Before we get to our front page, I told Carol I just wanted to grill her about her background and how she got into journalism and decided to write the book. So can you tell us a little bit about where your interest in journalism came from and how you ended up as a New York Post columnist, which I think is a a job that a lot of young people would
0: absolutely love to have? I really fell into it, which is the worst story to tell young people. But I was a blogger back when blogging was new and fresh and, you know, you got to explain to people what it was. Oh, it's a, you know, web blog. It's a website. It's just, you know, it was a, a new, new thing. And I had a blog that was fairly popular for the time. I think right now it would be, it would be just a micro micro blog, but at the time it, it would, it did pretty well. And I had a lot of readers who were regulars. I was a conservative blogger in New York city. So that was Unique in its in and of itself. What was the and name of the blog? Alarming news, so so alarmingnews dot com. And I had it for a long time. I started it in the time after 9-11, which I think is a, lo- a time when a lot of blogs were launching. And Instapundit was the blog father. He had sort of launched, you know, a thousand ships. And so I was writing on my blog, and I was going to be a lawyer. I was I was thinking about going to law school. I fully was not thinking about being a journalist. And then WNYC, the public radio station in New York City, was looking for a conservative to cover the Obama election on their blog, which still, again, was a new thing, and it wasn't that popular. So I started writing conservative commentary for them about that election. And they are a very obviously left-leaning radio station. And The other blog posts would get like three comments, five comments, and then mine would get like 300 comments, but most of them would be like, fire her or I'm never donating money ever again. So they liked having me on there. And then a friend of mine who was an editor at The Post saw something that I wrote for them. And he said, you know, why are you writing for them? Why don't you write for us? And I started submitting ideas to him and started writing columns for The Post. But my overall advice to young people is if you want to be a writer, start writing. Don't wait for somebody to say to you, hey, start writing. It, this is this is the time. You have to just start doing it. You have to start putting your ideas out there and, and really learning the structure of columns or, or news articles, whichever way you kind of want to go. But do it. Don't wait around to do it. Don't wait around to be hired to do it. Just start. And that is how you get better. That is how you grow. That is how you learn. And that's how people see your work and hire you. So that, that's the the idea. Carol, how old were you when you started Alarming News? I was in my 20s. I wasn't that's like true. a young, you know, ch- you know, I wasn't a teenager or anything. I know like now it's like if you're in your 20s and you're just starting that's something, it's considered already old. But I was maybe, in, I think maybe like 25 or so, 24. And just, you know, not not super young. And again, I I had graduated college already. I was working as a paralegal and I was thinking about going to law school. I was not going to go into journalism. That's crazy. I'm, I was born in Soviet Union. And when I was a kid, I said to my parents, like, oh, I want to be a writer. And they said, like, don't be crazy. That's insane. Like, nobody can be a writer. That's just not something that you're not one of the paths that you're allowed to take. It's like, Doctor, lawyer, computer programmist, like that's it. You know? <laughs> so, so those are those are the
1: options. Well, I was going to ask how you became a conservative since you mentioned uh, basically always having come having a conservative perspective. But tell tell us a little bit about that.
0: Well, what I would say about that is that most people who escaped communist countries and get to America don't end up liberals. It's just the way the way that things go. So my ex-Soviet community in Brooklyn, who are predominantly Jewish, are very conservative. And so the community is very conservative. My parents, I would say, were like moderate Republicans. I'm way more conservative than they are. And I I don't know. I just always saw the conservative perspective as the one that I agreed with. I would say I went through maybe a a patch of like America hating in college or just being kind of eye about living in the freest, best country in the history of the world, like every kind of teenager goes through. But I overall was always a conservative and I'm really open about it. I mean, throughout my life, like I've done stuff like I I lived in Scotland and I lived on a commune and I was an open conservative there. And so I've always been myself and not been afraid to be a conservative. And a large part of that is because my community is conservative and that's, you know, protected for me. Carol,
1: let's talk about the book. You're used to writing, you know, 600 to 800 word columns (laughs) for the post. They're short, they're pithy. Then you set out to write a book. What inspired you to do that? And what was the process
0: like? And then I'll ask you a bit about the book. Well, so I co-authored it with Bethany Mandel, who is a friend of mine. And we, for a long time, sort of were on the same writing path where she'd write a column and then like I'd write a column on the same topic, you know, without discussing it with each other, obviously. Just we were coming from the same place, two Jewish women, but just pretty similar outlooks, but we we definitely have different paths. Overall, I have three kids. She has six. My kids generally went to public school. Hers are all homeschooled. So that kind of thing, we just had a lot of similarities, but also some differences. And I would say that pre pandemic, my writing was I wrote about all kinds of things. And I wrote about whatever topic I thought was fun that week. Like I've written like a defense of selfies or written about immigration or just all kinds of topics for the New York Post. And the pandemic really changed what I wrote about because suddenly I saw kids being targeted in a way that I have never seen before. And I thought, I have to speak up for these children. The fact that they took away school from so many kids across the country and that wasn't like a giant concern for so many people really made me crazy. And I could save my own kids. I can get them a tutor. I can, you know, we ended up moving to Florida, but I felt like I had to keep speaking up for the kids that didn't have people to speak up for them. And the book was born out of that. I suddenly had parents from across the country writing to me and saying, I'm seeing this indoctrination happening in our school or in our library or from our pediatrician or in, in all the different facets of life. And I get these really worried emails about what should I do? What, what can I do for my kid? And it really grew from there. Bethany and I saw that this, what we call like the, the woke virus was spreading and was targeting children. And again, my ex-Soviet background really played into that because my whole life, I heard these stories about the societal pressure and the conformity and the way you weren't allowed to speak outside of very narrow confines was a thing that happened in totalitarian societies. And for the first time ever, I really felt it happening in America, especially during the pandemic and about, you know, pandemic policies, but about so many different things. You can no longer say, I'm not racist. You must say I'm anti-racist. And that is the word that we use now. And that is how you're only allowed to speak in this one way. So... That was really what happened. That Bethany and I couldn't not look away from the kids. No, I like to say, I like to write about cool topics. And kids are not cool. They're really not. And yet, yeah, I felt like I, I had to do this. And I,
1: I I couldn't stop. What has the reception to the book been like? And was there anything, was there anything that surprised you in the process of writing? I have to say, like you know, I I covered the Trump White House years ago at, at Politico, and so at every I feel like every Trump White House reporter wrote a book in, publishers come to you and say, you should write a book. It was like good money for them. And I've always been so intimidated by the prospect of committing to a really long-term project. I come from the world of daily journalism. So was there anything that surprised you
0: about doing this sort of long-term project? I really did not like it. (laughs) So I don't, I, I don't blame you. I love writing 700 words, wait, you know, refreshing the page until it hit the website, seeing it in print the next day, getting a reaction just the the immediacy of it, I, I really enjoy my job. And I, the book process, while I love the book, I love that we did it. I love the reaction that we've gotten where people are really, really into it. And they send me, you know, their favorite parts or like pictures of themselves with the book. And it's all been fantastic. But for me, I definitely prefer a daily, you know, the, the writing of a weekly column or a, a twice a week column. And getting the immediate satisfaction of of having my my words out there. Also, the fact is, and this didn't end up happening to us, but so many times between the time you write the book and the time the book comes out, the topic gets stale. In our case, it actually, we hit it at the exact right time in in a way that we could not have even predicted. But, you know, it happens all the time that a, a book idea kind of falls flat by the time it makes it to print. So that kind of concern was definitely on our minds we would talk about like is this still going to be relevant when 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 the book comes out and obviously it is but you know as part of us who was hoping that it wouldn't be we definitely thought like oh it'd be great if we could just work out this whole kids being indoctrinated in every part of their lives before you know march 2023 my last question on this and then
1: we're going to get to our, our regularly scheduled programming is I'm sure there are a lot of parents out there for whom your book resonates. And I'm wondering, do you have any advice for people who their kids are? You mentioned your kids are in public school. They go to doctors. And I I was just in a doctor's office this morning. They're like, the last places on earth where you still have to wear masks, which is weird and strange. And but you got to send your kids to school, you know, for people who have financial constraints or they're working parents. Like, how do you navigate around this stuff without actually... Doing what you think is some damage to your kids. I faced this where I had a, you know, child under one who was in a in a daycare where they were masked, and I was very concerned about her seeing mouths and and stuff like that. But it's like for parents who just feel constrained or like there aren't there are no other options. Like, have you heard?
0: What are your thoughts on that? Well, so in the book, Bethany and I provide two different. Kind of conclusions. And again, for her, she really pulls her kids out of culture. She homeschools all six of them. She doesn't let them watch modern movies. She pre reads books. She does all of this. Well, I have a, a much looser path for my kids and we provide the foundation at home. I get this question a lot. And the thing is that there's no easy answer. And there's not going to be a moment where you're like, oh, okay, I don't have to oversee what my kids are doing or learning or whatever. It's going to be a fight. And we had actually had trouble publishing this book with conservative publishers because they wanted us to tone down the fight message. But we couldn't because this is what it's going to take. It's going to take awkward conversations. Like you you mentioned, the masking. The masking was a, a big moment because I saw that parents were concerned And yet we're terrified to say anything. They didn't want to be marked as different or, you know, Trump supporters or whatever. for for wanting something so normal, not wanting their kids to see mouths, we used to know that that was what was necessary for development and speech. And now, you know, it became something you were not allowed to say. So when we opened this book with a history chapter on the kind of forced conformity of authoritarianism. It's really important that people understand that while I am comparing, you know, our current situation to China and Cambodia and Soviet Union, what's different is nobody's dragging you to a work camp because you said the wrong thing. Now you can you're going to have some social pressure. You might have some bad comments on Facebook, but if you don't speak out for your own kid, like there's nothing anybody can do for you. You have to be the voice of that that fights for your child. Okay, we are going to get to our front
1: page, but before we do that, Again, we would love you to sign up for our newsletter, which has links to all of the articles that we talk about. Just email us if you want to sign up at wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com. That's wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com. And also, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you get your podcasts on. We are considering a merch giveaway for some of the best reviews, so if you do leave us a review, send us an email and let us know what merch you might want, and we'll look it over. You might end up getting something in the mail, so send us a note, and thank you to all the w- reviews we have gotten so far. We will turn now to our front page. Carol, I thought we had to start with the leaked documents and the coverage yeah. of the leaked documents. The Washington Post has this huge story this morning where I was amused reading the outtake. They they have tracked down the online chat room, yeah. minor, the, the you know, teenage friends of the leaker who is described just as OG, I guess the username he went by on this Discord platform. Mm-hmm. And so the Washington Post has tracked down these teenage, a couple, it seems like two teenagers who were in this chat room with him. And he's described as a young, charismatic gun enthusiast Mm -hmm. who shared highly classified documents with a group of far-flung acquaintances searching for companionship amid the isolation of the pandemic. United by their mutual love of guns, military gear, and God, the group of roughly two dozen, mostly men and boys, formed an invitation-only clubhouse, blah, blah, blah you know, maybe we'll, maybe we hope this person will be found and he will be some raving right wing lunatic, but you can certainly feel the press coverage, like pushing it in that direction. Right.
0: right, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I feel like the article is like gleefully, like, I think it's a right winger, you know? (laughs) And yeah, you see this all the time in in media coverage where they're so excited when it's not a leftist. And if it is a leftist, obviously they cover it up and make it go away. Yeah. I think that, you know, this article was to me really, it's it's already symbolic of, of, of larger press coverage. It's, it's really what the problem is with so much of our media that like, I I want you to find the truth. I want you to report the truth, but like the tone is just so different when they're talking about the various political sides.
1: The other thing I found interesting was that we've had major leaks before, you know, we've had WikiLeaks and we had Julian Assange and Edward Snowden; mm-hmm. those guys were like heralded as whistleblowers. I don't sense that's the direction in which, <laughs> which this one is going. But Sorry. my other question was, how on earth did the post track these guys down, seemingly before the FBI? And then they quote they quote the minor, so you know, some teenager like 14, 15 years old who is friendly with this the OG, the, who they think is the leaker, saying that he has not been contacted by federal authorities. So yeah. it is somewhat alarming that that like, you know, two reporters at The Washington Post were able to get in touch with and they have the we will link the article, but they have the kid on video mm-hmm. that they were able to track these people down before the authorities If what they're saying is true.
0: Yeah, this kind of thing really doesn't pretend well for our FBI. <laughs> like, I feel like the, the conversation on Twitter around this is another black mark against the FBI and like, what are they working on and what are they doing that the, the Washington Post is able to beat them to this? Yeah, it's concerning.
1: Okay, up next. This broke, I think it was as we were recording last week or right before we rec- recorded, ProPublica had this, you know, quote unquote, blockbuster piece about... Clarence Thomas's rich friend Harlan Crow, and the fact that Clarence Thomas had vacationed at Harlan Crowe's camp in the Adirondacks and had gone on his t- private jet to Indonesia. Summer is just around the corner and you might be starting to consider some vacation plans, maybe a trip to an amusement park, or if you're a Supreme Court justice like Clarence Thomas, you might be planning to jump on a friend's private jet and Spend the weekend lounging around on a super yacht off the coast of Indonesia. And trips, like you said, New Zealand, Indonesia, on private jets. Ariadne, how unprecedented is this, really? It's unheard of at the Supreme Court.
0: <laughs> My gosh, anyone would know that uh, uh, having someone wine and dine you to the tune of literally millions of dollars over the last few decades, anyone should know uh, that that is not Good. You want him to be impeached. Chief Justice John Roberts
1: must now come forward and and state if he allows and is allowing this kind of very serious corruption to happen on the, on this court. But Harlan Crow, it turns out, is a collector of artifacts of di- dictators, and he owns a signed copy of Mein Kampf, assorted Nazi memorabilia. He has a garden of statues of some of the twentieth century's worst despots so a couple of things struck me was that in all of this coverage it it, it appears that the disclosure rules have changed very recently
0: right. yeah
1: so the upshot of the story was like he hasn't violated any rule of course, in past right. he mm-hmm. If he were to continue doing this and not disclose it, he would be in violation of the new rules, which he has not done. So it was like this nothing burger story that was right. wall to wall mm-hmm. everywhere. And the other is the attempt to paint Harlan Crow as some kind of lover of dictators based on mm-hmm. the historical memorabilia. And I'm particularly curious in your take on that, like every article that's written about it mentions
0: these historical artifacts. That right. It's, it's really gross to me, the casual destruction of this man, just because of his connection to somebody that they don't like. I I find all of that really abhorrent and just, I I don't know. I I think there needs to be some sort of pushback for this, but I'll say I have three kids. My middle son is a giant history buff. So recently when the book came out, Glenn Beck had, and I was going on the Glenn Beck show in, in. Dallas and his producer knew that my son was a history buff and said, oh, why don't you bring him and have him, like see Glenn Beck's history memorabilia? My son was dazzled. I mean, really, truly dazzled. And there was Nazi memorabilia. They have, I mean, he has everything from every era. So I, you know, I was wondering how that would, how my son would look at it. And he was like, no, you have to have this. You have to like, you have to have the good and the bad. And you, you can't just, leave out the bad parts of history. And again, he's 10, but I felt, you know, that was, that's the right way to look at it. You cannot just, history is not just a series of good events that we should celebrate. It also has bad events that we should remember and not erase in the name of, you know, cleaning up the 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 path for ourselves. So I have absolutely no problem with anything that Harlan Crow collects. I think that that's crazy that he's been turned into some monster who loves Hitler because he has memorabilia of various time periods. And I, just the coverage of this really rubbed me the wrong way as most media coverage does. This was amazing. So Trump had
1: spoke from the podium at Mar-a-Lago on Wednesday. And ABC News takes this live and their footage of it blurs out the podium that has the Trump campaign logo and contact information, information on it. So now we get an explanation from the Daily Beast. The headline is, quote, misunderstanding led to GMA's blur of Trump campaign podium. The Wednesday podcast of ABC's Good Morning America blurred the portion of Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago podium that showed a number through which supporters can contact and donate to the indicted former president's 2024 campaign. This is the best part. A network source told The Daily Beast that the blurred podium was attributed to a misunderstanding. Nevertheless, Carol, nevertheless, Nevertheless. many conservatives Mm -hmm. saw the incident as an example of media (laughs) bias against the twice impeached and now indicted former president. Right wing media personalities latched onto the footage Wednesday evening, writing online that the alter that the alteration amounted to election interference, blah, blah, blah. I love the like so crazy. These people would write and see some kind of bias here. I mean,
0: what are these people smoking? Right. You know, Republicans pounce is the the actual story (laughs) here. It's not the blurring out. You know, it's look, maybe it was a mistake. It just seems the mistakes only ever happen in one direction. And I don't hear really. And I'm sorry there. I just hear hear like we, we made a mistake. We blurred out an image. That was that. I just can't see them doing that to a Democrat. And that's, you know, continually the problem with our media is that they don't treat the sides even remotely fairly.
1: I also loved, there's no explanation here of what the misunderstanding was. Like, right. The producer was told X and that, you know, we meant it to, we meant for him to do this and he understood why and it was, you know, it was a fiasco. Right. So that was, that was amusing. It is time for our, our weekly update on the Fox News Dominion lawsuit, which is set to start next week. And the judge has ruled that Rupert Murdoch, must testify. So Bloomberg is reporting that Murdoch is likely to be grilled about Fox News's oversight of hosts and guests who repeatedly make made false claims that Dominion's machines were engineered to steal votes from then President Donald Trump. And then the other interesting aspect that came out this week is, um, and I want to pull this up, that the judge in this case, Delaware Superior Court Judge Eric Davis, who I feel like is be- going to become a national media figure as news outlets are pushing not only for audio out of this trial, but they want video footage from inside the courtroom, which would mean, you know, potentially seeing people like, um, well, our own Chris Stierwald, but also folks like Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram and Sean Hannity and Rupert Murdoch on the stand. So this judge, Eric Davis, was sanctioned. Er, sorry, the judge, Eric Davis, sanctioned Fox News for allegedly with or for withholding evidence in the Dominion lawsuit from from the Dominion lawyers. Next week, we will have a lot to talk about as the lawsuit will be underway. I think it is the 17th that it begins. We're recording Thursday, the 13th. And Carol, we chatted about this beforehand. But as a New York Post columnist, we're not going to go go to you for commentary. I will bring you back in, however, to discuss the Tennessee Three. Yahoo News writes how Republic- how Tennessee Republicans turned gun control lawmakers into Democratic heroes. And it is about how the expulsion of these three lawmakers, you know, sort of vaulted them to national fame. Curious in your thoughts about how this has been covered, the incident and how it's been covered.
0: Very similarly to January 6th, obviously, right? Like <laughs> almost identical coverage. I, I just, it, it's, it's the overarching problem with our media is that they, ha- they, they picked the a side and they run with it. I think that the coverage has been just so over the top that I think even some Democrats, I feel like, are embarrassed about it because, you know, they, they don't want protests in the seat of government they they don't and they don't want people barging in and they don't want politicians helping protesters get in they don't want any of that but they they can't say it because these people have been heralded as such heroes that i i think that we, we just you know we've reached a stage where people can't say what they actually think because the sides are so polarized and to me that's the most dangerous part I happen to think that, you know, this story
1: sort of got outsized coverage for how important it was. It was like wall to wall on every channel with these lawmakers, but they they were dubbed the Tennessee three. And then the Mm -hmm. two Justins were everywhere. I did think it was a strategic or a a tactical blunder for the Republicans to expel these guys and, and, and hand the Democrats heroes to to laud. But. I agree with you. I mean, these guys disrupted the proceedings of their own their own legislative body. And so I do think like it's a case where the Republicans here are on the right side in terms of principle. But mm-hmm. the execution
0: was, I think, not right. It could, could have been better. Did you see the video, the old video of Justin, I think, Jones, where he's like calmly speaking and like just sort of non-performative in in his in mm-hmm. his the way he speaks. Carol, let's actually play those. This is the
1: a recent Justin Pearson preaching at a church versus a Justin Pearson a few years back when I think when he was running for president of the Bowdoin student body or something like that. Mm-hmm. But let's play that. Well, y'all, I was glad when
0: they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Uh, I'm so glad to be in the house of the Lord with you this morning. Would, would you mind going ahead and praying with me now, Mother God, Creator God, loving God, Holy God,
1: take this your servant made from dust and connected with the raw materials of Stardust to speak in this moment. Dustin J. Pearson, and I'm running for president of BSG. There are a few reasons that we're running this campaign this year. One has to do with representation. How can we represent all voices in a conversation? I wanted to do this by partnering with organizations from the Putin Democrats to the Putin Republicans. Carol, I'm not sure what that says about the incentives of modern culture. I think somebody had the comment on Twitter like it's the scourge of theater kids in government. (laughs) Totally, totally. Up next, we have Michael Schaefer. This is a wonderful column. I often enjoy the, this Friday column in Politico, the Michael Schaefer Capital City column. So he, he's calling for the return of Crossfire. And the reasoning is as follows. He writes that almost two decades after the show went off the air, what has replaced it across much of the TV landscape is somehow even less edifying. There are news shows that interview with varying degrees of effectiveness public figures who have a point of view But as far as real-time engagement between folks with contrasting worldviews, it's slim pickings. Today's conflict-free opinion landscape is instead dominated by programming featuring like-minded people ginning one another up to even more rage. One common format might even have felt familiar to Stewart way back when, and he's referring to Jon Stewart, who called for the end of Crossfire way back when. An opening monologue followed by a usually friendly conversation with someone who supports the point of the opening monologue, all designed for an audience that already agrees.
0: Rarely does anything puncture the bubble.
1: What are your thoughts, Carol?
0: I love this one because I fully agree. I hate that we don't argue anymore and that you know we don't have adversarial conversations. I have not had one interview for our book where somebody like was on the left and wanted to talk about the issues. I, I haven't. Just it, it's really unfortunate to me. And I think that that John Stewart thing is so pivotal moment where he yells at them for for having crossfire. And then he has his own show where he like pretends to do news, but also he's joking. So don't criticize him. I mean, I I think nobody did more to destroy our national conversation than Jon Stewart. So I, the, the idea of bringing back crossfire, I'd love to see some argument on cable news. It makes for good TV. Those clips, the occasional arguments that do happen always go viral If the point is to get more eyeballs, definitely some adversarial conversations would do it. I
1: really like this because
0: I think that
1: holding up the image of people who don't agree, but are nonetheless friendly with each other is a good Mm -hmm. thing to do. And one of the things I've noticed is that it's not that like, say, let's say CNN won't have Republicans on. It's that, and, and Fox News does the same thing. It's that, they take the worst examples. They don't, you know, they're not looking to entertain the best version of the argument, shall we say? No, right. And right. The qual- so you've got the smarmiest liberals knocking down the stupidest Republicans making the stupidest arguments. And that is very intentional.
0: Or they're having Republicans who agree with everything that the liberal says, which, you know, really makes me crazy. But I would say that the one show that I do where this is not true, Kennedy, is a show where they always show the other perspectives. It's usually left, right and libertarian. And I've had lots of disagreements on Kennedy and they've always been fun and respectful.
1: This one we're doing in Chris's stead. Chris, by the way, is on spring break with his son in Germany. But Chris loves climate change coverage. So the (laughs) AP, the AP writes, their headline is climate change adding 50 homers a year in MLB study says, and this piece piece by Seth Borenstein says, Climate change is making major leaguers, major league sluggers into even hotter hitters, sending an extra 50 or so home runs a year over the fences, a new study found. Hotter, thinner air that allows balls to fly farther contributed a tiny bit to a surge in home runs since 2010, according to a statistical analysis by Dartmouth College scientists published in Friday's Bulletin of the American Meteor- Meteorological Society. I think the it's steroids. Is, <laughs> Global warming is juicing home runs in Major League Baseball, said study co-author Justin Mankin, a Dartmouth climate scientist. I mean, I applaud them for the effort Trying to make it. their climate science relevant.
0: Yeah, that's definitely what they're doing because there's I it's just one of those studies that you know is nonsense. Like you know, somebody's gonna poke a thousand holes in it and. It's not real. I mean, come on. Lighter air is causing home runs. It's just insane. We're going to get Chris on it and circle back on this next week. I'm making
1: a note right now that we got to get Chris commentary (laughs) on this one next week. That it is time for our style section. And we have a packed style section this week. Up first, Jezebel reports that Rupert Murdoch Murdoch and Jerry Hall's divorce agreement bars her from giving story ideas to succession. At the age of 91, Murdoch blew up his fourth marriage. Hall was waiting for Murdoch to meet her at their Oxfordshire estate last June when she checked her phone. And Rupert said, Jerry, sadly, I've decided to call an end to our marriage. His email began, according to a screenshot I read. I love that he emailed this. This is like very succession. And Hall told friends she had to move everything out of their Bel Air estate within 30 days. Yada, yada. When she settled into the Oxfordshire home she had received in the divorce, she discovered surveillance cameras were still sending footage back to Fox headquarters. Mick Jagger sent his security consultant to disconnect this. I mean, Carol, I hope if I ever get divorced, it goes something like this.
0: (laughs) Truly. Um, At least get the Oxfordshire estate (laughs)
1: Yeah, and I hope that Mick Jagger sends over his guy to disconnect the the security cameras. So we're going to link this piece. It is Vanity Fair piece by Gabe Sherman. It's amusing and definitely belongs in the style section. Up next is CNN's or the SNL parody of CNN's Trump hating liberals with this ad for indictment ASMR. Let's play the ad.
0: Let New York Times reporter Maggie Haberman soothe you to sleep. This is his worst nightmare, and he's really freaking out because now he knows there are consequences. 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 You can also listen to clips of Trump and his allies desperately spiraling. Please, Donald
1: J. Trump is an innocent man, and he needs your help. Send him all your money today at DonaldJTrumpRU slash fundraisingscam.guilty.
0: Trump's next court appearance won't be till at least December. That's why CNN has a whole section of Trump indictment ASMR. Can you hear him getting fingerprinted?
1: Ooh. I loved it. It's
0: really good. Yeah, uh, I, I loved it. It's surprisingly accurate. <laughs>
1: It's like the perfect example of what would have been on CNN plus, and I'm happy to see SNL parodying the Trump haters. It is that was that was fantastic. SNL is
0: yeah, they're at their best when they do this kind of thing. When they when they're able to kind of laugh at themselves, I think that's like when they shine. Some of the best moments I think were like. The, the post-election party with Dave Chappelle on SNL. I thought that was one of the best, you know, skits they've ever done. But it, it's it's hard to get them to laugh at themselves. They take themselves so seriously now.
1: It was fantastic. And I brought this piece of hard news into the style section. Chris Licht, the CNN president, the other Chris, appeared at the Semaphore Media Summit. I just want to make sure that's where it was. That is where it was. Semaphore Media Summit in New York. This week, and Don Lemon was in the audience, and he was asked about Don Lemon's comment that Nikki Haley is past her prime. And I would say he, I would say he defended Don Lemon, and it is a further Im- indication that Lemon is not going anywhere. Um, from CNN, he said Don Lemon is a lightning rod because he really came to prominence during an era where that was celebrated and encouraged in primetime. Lick told Semaphores Ben Smith. When asked to comment on how he deals with press coverage surrounding Lemon, uh. if you're if you're asked if you're getting asked how you deal with press coverage surrounding X person on your on your payroll, it might be time to rethink that. And then Lick said CNN has moved on from that, and Don has moved on from that. What if it that were true, Carol?
0: Right. I that's uh that's very convenient for them that everybody's just moved on. <laughs> I, I, I feel like I, I would love to see the same thing on uh, from Fox or, you know, any of the conservative outlets. Like, oh, we're not talking about that anymore. We have moved on. Would that it
1: which would, would that it were true. We are skipping the obsessions this week because of our chat with Carol and we try to keep these two around an hour between 45 minutes and an hour. So we're gonna skip obsessions and we will be back with them next week. So we are going to jump to my favorite portion of the show, which is reader mail. And we have a note from Leonard Goodnight in Falls Church, Virginia, who says, Hello, the other day I was thinking about all the weird and wonderful local political traditions we have in this country. And that took me back to my home state of Arkansas, where one of the great must attend political charity events this year is the Gillette Coon Supper. That got me to wondering, Chris, what's your favorite way to prepare raccoon? As a proud West Virginian, I'm sure you've got one. Stewed, deep fried, diced for use as a pizza topping, something else. Back home, we prefer barbecue. Eliana, I don't mean to leave you out, but I don't even know if raccoon is kosher. Do you happen to know offhand? I'm horrified even by the question. <laughs> thank you. but Thank you, Leonard, for the note. I'm going to make sure that Chris answered this next week. Carol, have you had raccoon?
0: I have not had raccoon, but I dated somebody from West Virginia and I learned the reality that roadkill is legal to eat in West Virginia, provided you are the one who hit it. You can't just like pick up random roadkill from the road, make yourself a sandwich. You have to kill it yourself and then you can do whatever you want. Oh my gosh. (laughs) So have you done it? No, I have not. (laughs) I oh have I have not formed any roadkill myself, uh, you know. In Florida, though, now I, you know, I, I grew up in Brooklyn. I did not see a lot of roadkill there, but now I see quite a bit. And the idea of like running something over and then just like putting it in my trunk and taking it home to the barbecue,
1: oh I don't my know god! About that. And it is now time. We're gonna do this in Chris's honor for Chris's favorite segment of the week, where. I am forced to say something nice, but I'm going to lead by example this week because we don't make our guests do things like that. (laughs) The story that amused me most this week and that I liked was, and it's actually kind of old, but of all the Trump indictment coverage, my favorite piece was in the New York Times and the headline was, Married During the Indictment. The 43 couples who wed at the Manhattan Marriage Bureau on Tuesday were greeted by crowds who gathered for Donald J. Trump's arraignment hearing around the quarter. And the author writes, at 1 p.m. on the day of Donald J. Trump's arraignment, about an hour before he pleaded not guilty to 34 felony counts in Manhattan criminal court, a line formed outside the marriage bureau around the corner, a smaller but no less determined crowd than the throngs outside the courthouse. We know from experience that when somebody wants to get married, no force on earth will stop them, said Michael McSweeney, the New York City clerk, including what's happening today. Some joked online that their wedding hashtag should be hashtag arraigned marriage. Among the anxious couples waiting to get married were Jerica Guerra, 53, and Natalie Bonilla, 37. Yada, yada, yada. It's it is this, is this is the best way to cover the Trump indictment. I, I loved it. It was amusing. And Carol, yours is yours is a little bit more serious. But but it does it is deserving of favorite of the week.
0: Well, my favorite story is the BBC reporter showing up at Twitter and Elon Musk granting an interview on Twitter spaces and the reporter asking, you know, what about all the new hate speech on Twitter? Like, what do you think about the rise of hate speech? And Elon Musk asks him to give one example and the, the BBC guy just can't do that. I would say that it took me a while to break my habit that I think it happens a lot on Twitter is that people are saying, people are saying, people are saying there's a lot more hate speech on Twitter. And people are saying is not a journalist thing to do. And you can't go into an interview with Elon Musk saying people are saying, which is what this reporter did. Elon Musk said, you know, people say lots of things and the reporter could not produce a single example. Well, let's play the
1: highlights because it went, it went beyond that. And I think, you know, for all of the craziness that surrounded Musk's takeover of Twitter, this back and forth did show like what a sharp guy he is. Yeah. It, it was it was mischievous and and a lot of fun to listen to. Let's let's play a clip. We've spoken to people very recently who were involved in moderation and they just say they just there's not enough people to police this stuff, particularly around um, particularly around hate speech um, in the company. You, is that well, what hate that speech are you talking about? I mean, you use Twitter. Right. Do you see a rise in hate speech? I mean, I, I, just a personal anecdote. Like, what do you? I don't. Can you, right, can you name one example? I, I honestly don't. Use, I, I, honestly, I. You don't, can't name I, a single example. I, I'll tell you why. Because I don't actually use that for you feed anymore.
0: Because no. I, I just don't particularly like it. But and actually, a lot of people. A lot of people are quite similar. I, I, I only. Well, well, I only well look hang at my, on a second. You said you've following.
1: seen more hateful content, but you can't name a single example. Not even one. I'm not sure I've used that feed for the last three or four weeks. And well, I. Well, then, I'm how did you I, see that hateful content? Because I've been, I've been using I've been using Twister since you've taken over for the last six months. Okay, so then you must have at some point seen the, for you hateful content. And I'm asking for one example. I think that is a wonderful note to end on. Carol, thank you so much for filling Chris's, Chris's shoes this week. That is all the time we have left for the news about the news. If you have a story you want us to talk about, email us at wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com. That's wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com. This has been Ink Stained Wretches from Nebulous Media, produced by Colin Chicola Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Wretches.